Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Thank you. Wow. I want to take a moment, and I think we should pray for our city again. We were reminded again last night uh, just how sad it is and how vulnerable our city is to uh, just to stupidity. When we see this kind of stuff happen a lot, but the worst part about it is usually when somebody does something stupid like this, they think they realize they're wrong in the end. And then, but then there's this whole group of people that just believe that they're actually like Jesus said. They think that if they're killing you, they're actually serving God. And so I just want to pray, and, and more than just pray for the victims. And I know there's a lot of people praying for the victims. Uh, specifically their families. Um, I want to pray for the conversion of these people who are so blinded to think that the only possible way they can make God happy is if they died in this kind of event, if you can imagine that. How sad, how sick to think that a God that you serve only is happy if you basically get killed in a holy war. So let's let's pray for, real quick over that, and then you're going to need your Bibles as the PowerPoint isn't working, and that's kind of part of the fun. Uh, and we're going to be in the end of John two, beginning of John three. So pray with me, would you please? <clears throat> God, I believe your word, and your word says that you are long suffering and not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance, to the knowledge of the truth, and you desire all to be saved. I believe that, as you say, you take no delight in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn and live. So God, I know this breaks your heart. But Lord, every day, there are people right now that are, in essence, sharpening their knives, and they're doing so because somehow they think that that's what you want. Oh God, break through them. And stop those who are perpetuating this nonsense. And rise up your church, Lord. I'll say one thing. They have conviction. Much more conviction than those who actually are holding the truth. So, Lord, make us people of greater fortitude than them. And even today, Lord, speak, I pray. In this text, now have your way, please. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures and make sure that the Bible is always your answer. Jesus had just cleared the temple, or at least as it's listed, uh, topically, nothing else. Oh yeah, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's watch this man and a baby hand you one. Make sure you get the Bible, not the baby. As Jesus has cleared the temple, they've asked, what right do you have? What sign will you show that you have a right to do this? Do some kind of cool miracle to prove that this is okay. And Jesus said, there's only one that validates that, and that is that I'm going to die and resurrect. What right do is... And then I look and realize that I'm the temple of the living God, even as we read in 1 Corinthians. And then I have to ask myself, what gives Jesus the right to ravage and clean me through? And it's the same as death and resurrection is enough, because through that I can say bye to death that once owned me, that's now slain and buried, and I can say hello to the new life, the abundant life, the eternal life. And we get that timestamp here now in John 2, 23, when we read now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. Now we were reading, by the way, that this was the Passover of the Jews. It was the feast of the Jews, not the feast of God, which is what God had intended. So that puts us in a time, we have a timestamp. That is the second month of the, our second week of the month, of the first month for them. It's our spring and it's spring in Jerusalem. And the, the remez, the first fruits of the harvest are happening. The world is waking up from the, if you will, from the cruelty of the winter rains. And as that's happening, we're two weeks into month one and we have our first feast, that feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread. And the people are waking up. They're waking up kind of like we see here where, you know, the winter, everybody kind of hides indoors. And then somehow we get that crazy sort of chaotic, manic, you know, bipolar weather patterns that we get during our spring where one day we're putting on our parkas again and our scarves and our wellies and the next day we're in shorts, or at least that's just me. 
And so, but there comes a point where you start to realize the weather might just be nice enough for you to be able to do this regularly and the people start coming out. And I know that. We live um, in Greenwich and just down the road from us is a pub that has an outdoor, outdoor seating area. And during the winter, of course, it's, it's vacant except for an occasional troublemaker. Uh, and of course, if you see someone, you're kind of a little bit more attentive. However, when the spring comes, the, the place just fills up. It fills up full of people, and you hear the life if your windows are open to keep your room cool. And, and, and there's a very, very different feel, of course. There's that kind of feeling of sort of, you know, swaddling yourself up in the, in the whatever your quilt is of choice. And then somewhere now we're kind of all running outside and we're starting to kind of catch the sun again. And Well, that's kind of where they're at at this point. And it's here now that we start our summer, or we, I'm sorry, we start our year with this idea of the story of God that who delivered us uh, from our bondage. He, he uh, saw our bondage, he heard our weeping, he knew our anguish, and he came down, he came down to set them free. He came down to raise them up. And that's going to be fundamental to all of this. And yet Jesus is gone now. To, to this Passover, the first of three Passovers we're going to have in this text. Uh, I'm sorry, in the Gospel of John. And in that, it tells us that Jesus, though he had done miracles, even at the Passover, we read that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. Do you see that there in verse 23? That's going to be really fundamental. And the reason is, is there's a, there's a bit of a, an eye-opening fact in, it, in a bit of the grammar. And, and for most of us, uh, interestingly enough, to me, it seems like the people who understand grammar the least are often like English grammar are often those who speak the language like myself. And yet, for a lot of people, we had to learn a lot of that in our other languages. And there's this the whole idea of this is present. That means it's now active, which means you make a choice. And then it's participle, which means you keep doing it. And when you relay that onto this statement, look at what happens. It says, they believed, they continued to believe, if you will, for the moment in his name, when they saw the signs that he did. Now that's the place we start this. In other words, if I can put it this way, as long as he continued doing the miracles, they continued believing. And that's a very, very dangerous place to be. And there is that relationship. You've probably, and hopefully you've never been in a relationship with a line drawer, because what you find is nobody ever draws one. That's kind of the, if you loved me, you'll do whatever this is. You'll come past this line. But the problem is, if you come past that line, they have a new one. Well, if you love me, then you'll do this. And if you love me, and by the time you're done, you've moved way far from where you originally were. Well, that's what we can do with God when we start demanding miracles from him all the time. And this is what, the, what we have, is Jesus, we're going to read, isn't going to be trusting in the people because he knows that right now their entire faith is wavering on the next thing that he does. The tense is that the miracles were at best a plaster or band-aid, if you will, from a to sort of an essence to aid a wavering faith. They're just a reminder, though, and, th- and there's our problem. These miracles are a reminder that there's something beyond the natural. As a matter of fact, the word for beyond is super, so supernatural. And what we're going to read now is that Jesus did not commit himself because he knew all, and he had no need that anyone testify of him because he knew it was in a man. And that leads us right into chapter 3. And we can kind of go, well, chapter 3 must be a new idea. But I remind you, it wasn't written with chapter markings. This went from one constant stream and it followed on. So get the idea. Jesus is, is in this position where he's looking and he's watching people and they're saying really nice things. And they're clearly looking with a, a look of trust. And that's kind of where we see them. And yet, even in all of that, he knows inside that everything that they're, they're basing their trust on is reliant on the miracle of the moment. And the moment that those sort of stop and they don't get what they want they can expect this god have drawn out things and this is the money i'm going to need this is the place i need to be this is the person i need to be with this is where i need to live and how i need to live and the moment none of some of even one of those things doesn't come to pass the way that we lay it out for him well now we're in a completely a, a sort of a crisis of faith well jesus knows that and our first response isn't always indicative of the final result that's what we see in this And we also recognize that the miracles are not a foolproof determinant of God's endorsement. And we're going to see that throughout text. We're going to see here, and we'll develop that in a moment. But get the idea. Jesus is looking. They're trusting in him, but he's not trusting in them. And by the way, it's important to note, he's never looking to find a place where he can believe in us. There's no place in Scripture where it tells us God believes in us. Because what that means is to put their trust upon. God doesn't put his trust upon us, because if he did, he wouldn't know us. (laughs) Let's just be honest. He wants us to put our trust in him. And there's the difference. He's not looking for us to entrust himself or believe in in me. He's looking for me to entrust myself to him. For he steers and guides and I trust and I follow. That's the idea. 
So Jesus doesn't need anyone else's testimony, but he wants to use me anyways. He doesn't need me, but he'd like to use me. And he doesn't need you, but he wants you. So let me ask you something before we jump into our text uh, as we move into chapter 3. Would you rather be wanted or needed? What would you rather? For me, I'll just be honest, I'd rather be wanted. Because needed isn't like they even have a choice. To be wanted means that there's a, a will involved, and in that will, they're exercising it to desire. That just seems to me a greater victory. If you're a lifeguard and somebody is drowning, at that moment they need you and you're going to go and pull them to shore. The bottom line is they'd probably rather be rescued by, you know, some blonde gal in a red bikini or something. But it doesn't matter. At the end of it, they need you to, to rescue them. But when they make that choice, well, then you recognize you've got something that involves a person's heart. And Jesus doesn't need us, but he does want us. He said he had no need that anyone should testify for he knew what was in a man. And then the question really is, well then, what's in a man? And it is through this we are introduced to this man, Nicodemus. Nika is a familiar word. Some of you are wearing it on your feet. Nike is the same word here as Nika for what we get, Nicodemus. That means victory. Or it was supposed to be the Greek god of victory. So you're wearing the Greek god of victory on your feet if you're wearing Nikes is the idea. Dimas means people. So the idea of Nicodemus means he has victory over the people, which is a really interesting name for this guy. He's listed at least three times in the Gospel of John. We wouldn't know he existed other than John. All three times it lists this event. Obviously, we have the event happening here. In John 7, we read the one who, uh, being one of them, but he was the one who came to Jesus at night. We could say Nick at night, John 7.50. And then in John 19.39, Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus at night, also came. He will be the one who will stand up in the courtroom, if you will, and say, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? It'll be John who will show up, I'm sorry, Nicodemus here, who will show up with Joseph of Arimathea to help anoint the body of Jesus after he'd been killed with a hundred pounds of a mixture of aloe and myrrh. We see that in John 19.39. And he always seems to be noted for this visit. But notice the context. The context is this. God knows what's in you. Well, I look at this text now, I have to start looking, and I go, what do I see in Nicodemus? And I would like to suggest this to you. There is a curiosity. That's what's in a man, first of all. There is a curiosity. When he comes to Jesus, there's also a fear because he comes to Jesus at night. And it told us for what it's worth in John 7.13 that even though many had believed in him, very, very few or no one is with the term that's used here, spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. And I think it's interesting that a guy that's showing up to Jesus at night under the cloak of darkness, his name means victory over the people, and yet the people are all cowering in fear over their leaders. And it's amazing what fear can make you do. Yesterday at 10 p.m., three men driving a van, as you're probably aware of, plowed into a group of people at the London Bridge. They jumped out afterwards and said, this is for Allah, with knives in their hands and proceeded to start stabbing people down in the borough market. They didn't say this was for the Tories, this is for the liberals. They didn't say this was for England. They didn't say this was because Turin lost. They said this was for their God. As if God could be pleased with that. Yet in fear, when we have the privilege of sitting down with many of these men specifically who come from this particular background, and you ask them, if fear were removed from your religion, how many of you would still be in that religion? And one of the men had said to me, I believe only the leaders because they have too much to lose. And this man is fearful, but he comes anyways. And what I'm going to find in the simplest of it, if you will, is that what is in a man is a heart that hungers for the eternal, but a mind that is kidnapped by the stuff of this world. It tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.11, amidst the other things he says there, he says he's put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find the work of God that is done 
from beginning to end, that God has placed within you eternity. There's something inside your heart that craves beyond the norm, the thing that's beyond the quantifiable, the thing that maths can't sort of put numbers to. And we're driven to things like love and art because those things, you can't put numbers on it. It's something that transcends all of the things we can put by gauge. And when those things don't work, we sedate. Whether we sedate with something as simple as a movie fest, cosplay, or whether we sedate by something more literal, some drug, something to kind of numb our mind from the reality that our hearts are starving for something they are not getting. So somewhere our, 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 our hearts are craving this thing and yet our minds have been filled with the information of this world and the information of this world, it, it, is, it is like, pardon me for using this analogy, it just pertains to me, it would be like being a voracious carnivore but being shoved into Santa Cruz or a place where everyone around you was a vegan and you were born and raised in that but you just didn't know. And something inside of you, you could smell it when you drive by someplace somewhere else and you're just like, I don't know what that is but I crave that but you can't even tell what it is because you just don't know. And so what you do know are vegetables and I'm not trying to pick on you if that's where you come from but it's kind of the idea of it is, is that you know you, you keep getting these green things put on your plate and you look at this and you're just, you just know this isn't the thing that makes your mouth water but you just don't know what it is that does. And something in your mind goes, man, there's, try this then or try, oh, try this then. And we do and we're so frustrated. Because if we get there and we get the money and we get the stuff and we get the place and we get the comfort and all the things that we were promised would satisfy and we're there and we're still stuck with vegetables on our plate and we're still there going, I just don't get it. I don't get it. What's wrong with this? And Jesus knows this. He knows that in our hearts they're starving but in our minds we're constantly trying to fill that void with something that it's just not capable of doing it. And that's where Nicodemus is as he comes into this. And ironically, he is supposed to be the ambassador of eternity. He is a religious individual here. He is one of the leaders of the Jewish party. He's the one who's actually supposed to let you know, as we are as Christians, he's supposed to let you know that the reason why you're dissatisfied, the reason why you're blowing yourself up, the reason why you're trying all of these things is because your heart is hungry for something you cannot find. And you're frustrated and you're confused and you're fearful and, and it, the whole thing is spinning and you're up to your neck in it and you're so tired of trying another thing that isn't going to work out and you're tired of not finding hope in it and then somewhere in all of it we're the ones that actually come in and actually say you know why because that hole is so big that only God can fill it no matter whatever you're going to put it with put in there instead it's just not big enough so there was a man we just read, he didn't trust, he, he, Jesus didn't believe in, he didn't put his trust in others because he knew what was in a man and now he says, now here's a man. That's a simple math. Jesus knew what was in a man and here's a man so you can see. Now he's of the Pharisees, he's the strictest of the religious ruling party and his name is again victory over the people and notice it says a ruler of the Jews. Interesting, because the last time I saw that, it was a feast of, or a Passover of the Jews, which of course means that it should have been to God, but it's not. It's to man instead. And it seems to me that this guy's part of that system. And there's our problem. It should have been a feast to the Lord. It should have been Passover to the Lord. God made it for him. And somehow in it, it's like the Lord had a party, and everybody came, and nobody actually even spoke with him. And there he was, waiting. He served the food. He took your coat. But every time he tried to break into a conversation with you, you turned and found someone else. That was the idea here. And what was worse is it was at his house. So here's the feast of the Jews, and here's a ruler of the Jews. A party did the very same thing. And it says, This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, This first word is Ravi. Ravi, by the way, means literally means one of abundance. We would use the term master. It's more likely used in things like martial arts and things like that, where somebody that has attained to a specific level, where that at that point you assume that they're a master in that art. Well, there's kind of the idea here. 
we might use the term teacher. We know that you are a teacher that has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Be careful of this. Notice his mindset. There's something in that miracle that reminds you of the supernatural, beyond the natural. That though your mind can't figure out, by virtue of it being a miracle, it defies logic. It can't be a miracle and be logical at the same time. Which means somehow in it, it overrides your, your mind. It overcomes your ability to think. And that's what, to be honest, some of us who cling to our brains like they're the Lord of all, what happens is the moment something our brain can't comprehend, we really go into meltdown because we're trying to run our universe and we're trying very hard. So what happens is the moment we can't describe it, we, we rule it off as a fraud because it clearly couldn't be that. Because if it were that, then I would actually have to believe my brain isn't enough. And those miracles do remind us there is something beyond the natural. It is amazing to me how many atheists believe in demons or haunted houses or witches' spells but won't believe in God. That makes no sense to me at all. Oh, I don't believe in anything I can't see. Is that house haunted? Sure. By what? Something you can see then? How did that work out? Does he have like a sheet or something he runs around in? But notice his mindset here is because you're doing a miracle, you clearly must be sent from God. There's a problem with that. Scripture warns us of this. And by the way, what's very clear is miracles are not a foolproof determinant of God's endorsement. They're a strong reminder of the world beyond, yes, but they are no proof that a guy's from God. In 2 Thessalonians, and don't just believe me, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he speaks about the Antichrist. And he says, The coming of the lawless one will be according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by these signs. What that means is, the guy that is the Antichrist, who has declared war on Jesus, this guy's going to do all kinds of miracles. And people are going to follow him because they have the same theology as this guy right here. This guy says, well, you must be of God. Look at this miracle. I mean, after all. And so when someone says, well, you know, we did this incantation, this witch's incantation, and a person was healed, what do you think of that? And see, the issue was not whether power was exuded, and the issue was not whether a person was healed. The issue was you're going to be accountable to the thing you've just used. And that's a lot bigger of an issue. It tells us what it's worth in Revelation 13, 13, that this Antichrist performs great signs and he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So if I can't use this, what do I use as a litmus test for somebody being honest? True. Interesting. It says in Matthew 7, 30, it says, by their fruits, you'll know them. But I say, we may not be called to be judges, but we are called to be fruit inspectors. And we listen and we watch the trail behind and there are people who can talk really sweet talk, but then you look behind them and there is a wake. It's like a graveyard that follows them of people that have been messed up and hurt and twisted. Now, Jesus doesn't even for a second take in the flattery. The guy says, clearly you must be from God because no one could do these things unless they were from God. And Jesus says, let's, let's just cut to the chase here. Most assuredly, amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Flip for a moment, look at verse 5. It says, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he can't even enter the kingdom of God. This is a fundamental, this is a salvation issue. Don't miss this. What that means is there is no such thing as a Christian who's not born again. Either you're born again or you're not. And if you're born again, you can see the kingdom of God. And if you're not born again, you can't. Unless you're born of the Spirit. You can't even enter the kingdom of God. So how is it that the person could be a Christian and not enter the kingdom of God? That doesn't make any sense at all. As a matter of fact, that is fundamental for us being Christian. And that's going to be our problem here with the guy. He comes in and again, a heart hungering and curious about, about uh, eternity, but a mind that is still wrapped up and trapped in this world. And so he says, look, you need to be born again. If not, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And Jesus is meeting Nicodemus now at his curiosity. Essential parliamentary. He wants to take it to eternity. But notice, nobody who is not born again goes to heaven. That's fundamental here. So Nicodemus answers and he says, how? That's his response. Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be. Not could be, or wouldn't that be kind of cool? This is the upper class Christian. This is the VIP Christian. He says, this is the only Christian. So Jesus serves with that. Nicodemus returns the serve with how? 
How can a man be born a second time? Jesus, again, is speaking about the eternity, and the man is responding with the world. Jesus is going after his heart, and his mind is firing back, which wouldn't be such a big deal if the guy wasn't supposed to be the ambassador of eternity. There's our problem. Hey, you talk to somebody out there, and you're trying to explain to them heaven, they must, we must sound like a nutter to them. And we try to explain somebody lived 2,000 years ago, 5,000 miles away, and he died for me, and he loves me, and I love him, but I'm, I have a wife, and that's still not weird. And, and somehow he's going to come back and suck me into the sky and take me to be with him forever, and he's building a house for me right now, but we're best friends, but he's my groom, but I'm not like that. And, and then somehow into that, and then that does sound weird. Let's be honest. It doesn't mean that's not true, but it does sound weird. As weird as it would have when Noah told everyone that water was going to fall from the sky. I don't know if you're aware of it. When Noah was building a boat, uh, no, yeah, when Noah was building a boat, rain had never fallen. Water had come up from the ground. So imagine how unscientific that would have sounded. He's like, water is going to fall from the sky, and everyone's like, "What an idiot this guy is!" Well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And he's like, "Well, but one thing's for sure: everybody agreed with Noah in the end." But there's a sad part where you realize that someone's right when it's too late. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. But some are going to do so when the rain falls and it's too late. I'd rather they know. So in this situation, Jesus says, you must be born again. He's, he's served this eternal ball, if you will, to his heart. And the guy volleys, if you will, he kind of returns the serve with how. The whole point is about how. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born Jesus answers and he says in verse 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, well, he can't even enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus volleys back his return with this. There are two births and you only know about one of them. The birth you know about is a very natural one. You don't know about the supernatural one. The natural one makes sense. You're born of water. You were born of the, the, the conjoining of a man and a woman. By the way, it doesn't matter how much you want to try to tell people that you associate with whatever and what gender, whatever, in the end of it all, it takes a man and a woman biologically to make a baby. And you could say, well, you know, in the end of it all, we can do it in a test tube or in an oven or in a microwave or however you do it, but it still takes a man and a woman somehow and all of it to make it happen. It takes the conjoining of two things, and in the same way, there is a conjoining of the love of God and your will. And he says, look at there is a natural birth. You get that. Everybody gets that. And here's the scary part about this when you think about it, is what happens is, is that he's so well aware of this. He's a well aware of that trajectory. He's well aware of the idea that we born, we grow, we age, we die. That's the natural thing, which means it has a very definitive start and has a very definitive end. The day that you're born, you know it because that's the day of your birth. You celebrate it more than likely once a year, and they call it your birthday. That works out really well because it's the day of your birth. That's your start. Although, clearly, we know that you were there before that. It's just the day that you made a public entrance into the world. Before that, you hung up with mom. And there's a day that you'll be able to put a date on your tombstone if you have one, if the Lord tarries. And as far as physically, that will be the end. Spiritually, it's another story. And what Jesus says is that we're going to see there's no beginning or no end here to the Spirit. And Jesus is constantly pulling them out of the temporary into eternal. He's basically, Jesus is basically doing what Nicodemus is supposed to have been doing to everyone else. That which is born of flesh, well, that's flesh. You get that. That's a natural birth. That which is born of spirit, well, that's of the spirit. He goes like, stop freaking out or marveling is the verse in seven. When I say you must be born again. And he goes, let me compare it to the wind. There are things on earth you can't gauge like that. You can gauge, and by the way, read verse 8 for a moment with me. And here's my question to you. Which sense identifies the wind here? You have seeing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and hearing. Those are the five senses. Is that right? Just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Unless, like, you're an X-man or something. Or, anyways, it says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Here's my question. Which sense is being used here to identify the wind? Excellent, you're hearing. It's important to note that. Because guess what sense that Nicodemus has been trying to use to identify the supernatural? His eyes. 
He is walking by sight. And so he sees miracles and that's enough for him, but he's not listening. And there becomes the problem. And you watch a guy and he's fancy and he waves his coat and everyone falls over and flops like a chicken or whatever. Or, you know, there's a guy and he screams and everyone just goes, oh, I feel it. Or whatever the case is at that moment. And you watch this stuff and you watch people and they're throwing modesty cloths all over everyone. And you, know, and you get all of this stuff. And I'm not trying to diss, but just watching it, he goes, you could really go and be, you know, you'll bite the hook. Man, you watch the person and they're fancy and woo. Like a, but it's like Jesus is like, but when something happens with the Spirit, you're going to hear it. Interesting, because every time we associate the move of the Spirit, somehow we always assume that this, the move of the Spirit is going to be something we feel. It's going to be something that everyone feels because if the Spirit's here, we feel it. And yet Jesus is constantly reminding us something should be heard. Because what the world needs is not just to see something. The world needs to hear the truth about Jesus Christ. And they're hearing the lie really well. They heard it loud and clear last night. And what if that was someone we loved that we could have had a chance to share with, but we didn't? When they were waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, how did they know the Holy Spirit was there? The first thing that caught their attention. It was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. You think it came from this text? It doesn't even say that they felt it. I think, to be honest, that would be the cooler part. As you heard this thing that sounded like a really mighty wind, but you didn't, but not a hair on your head moved. And for some of you, that's a lot of hair. For some of us, not so much. But imagine you hear this... Going on, and while that's happening, we look around the room, and everyone's head is as still as Bruno's. And we go, "Wow, that's a little strange." And I'm thinking, "Wow, since you used an awful lot of product today, you know." And then I realize, actually, it's just a sound. And then it was tongues as a fire. Why tongues? Because the power and the move of the spirit is heard. Imagine what it could have been. It could have been flexing muscles of fire. Think about it. Could have been like, you know, Iron Man, hands of fire. I mean, think of the things it could have been. Eyes of fire. No, it was tongues of fire. And then what happened when the Holy Spirit came upon them? They started to speak. And you heard it. And they spoke in languages they didn't even understand. But there were a whole lot of other people outside that did. They understood it. God knew what he was doing. And they all came and they were like, what in the world is that? I hear them speaking in my language. That's a strange thing. Especially when you realize the Galilean. And then Peter stands up and speaks and says, let me explain what this is. The same guy that denied Jesus thrice prior now stands up and leads 3,000 people to salvation right there. So what was the coolest part of Acts chapter 2? That they were filled with the Holy Spirit? That they had this cool hearing out loud wind sound? That they saw tongues of fire? Or that 3,000 people took a U-turn that day from hell and went up in the arms of God. You tell me what's the bigger miracle, especially in the sight of God. And Jesus looks, and I, I get this. The guy doesn't figure it out. And it would, again, it wouldn't be a big deal if he wasn't a religious leader. But he, the guy's like, I don't get it. Am I going to crawl into my mom again? And imagine if Jesus would have been, yeah, yeah, give that a try. You can imagine, yeah, the letter he would have gotten from this guy's mother. But he's like, look it, you already know how to be born naturally. You don't need to do that again. You need to be born spiritually. Because there are two births and you're only getting one of them. And look it, you can't see where the wind's coming from. You can't go, I'm pretty sure this originated three miles out. And you're not even sure where it's going. And for a world where everything has to be gauged, I need to know its start, I need to know its end, I need to be able to bracket into my understanding this isn't going to do it. And I try to explain Jesus on finite terms to a finite mind, and it wouldn't surprise me if their brains just blew up and oozed out of their heads. That's why we need the work of God's Holy Spirit to convince them, because I'll never be able to do that. So the wind blows. You hear the sound of it? You can't tell where it comes from, nor where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So guess what he's going to say to this? Well, Jesus has already been explaining it to him. 
Nicodemus answers him, and he says in verse 9, How? Did you notice his response in both cases? It's a how. And here's the interesting part. When we're stuck in the world, we want to know the how. Because if we, if we can get the how, we can understand it. And I get this, that one of the verses most people know, you could be a Christian for like a month, and somehow this verse just starts coming out of you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not upon your own understanding. Yeah, we get it. In all your ways, acknowledge him. You'll direct your path. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Sounds like a really simple clarion thing, right? So how do I trust in the Lord with all my heart? Just try the second one. See how well you do with that. Lean not upon your own understanding. So in other words, I don't have to understand it to do it. Because I trust. When God says to Abraham, all right, I want you to go. Abraham's like, I don't understand. Could you imagine? Do you realize my wife's name is contentious right now? I have to explain this to her. We're 70, I'm 75. I've been checking out some really nice retirement communities, places with badminton and jello. These are good places. Ooh, and I, and you're gonna, I mean, the things he could have said that we would have, but he didn't. He had to trust that he couldn't lean on his own understanding. And imagine the conversation between him and Sarai, Sarai at the time. Hey, God just talked to me. Joshua 24 tells us that they came from an idol-worshiping household. So you could see her going, which one? And he's like, I don't know. What's his name? Didn't say. What do you say? We need to go. Where? I don't know. To do what? I have no idea. When are we going to get there? I don't know. Do you realize following God will actually grant you the grace to be able to say, I don't know, many times more than actually giving a positive answer? And that's okay? Because the person who's asking you is trying to understand. And when they're trying to understand, they're trying to lean on their understanding but you're not leaning on yours. Imagine how frustrating that is. When you tell them you're leaving a comfortable thing that's going on in one place and you're saying, I'm going to leave this because the Lord's told me we need to move across the entire Atlantic Ocean. And there are people that love you and go, I don't get it. And you're like, I don't get it either. But I'm doing it because he told me and that's good enough for me. So Nicodemus went, you know, look, you need to be born again. He says, how? And now he says, look at this is like the wind. And the wind, you can't tell. You can't gauge its beginning and you can't gauge its end. And he's like, well, how? How can these things be? And he looks and goes, well, you're a teacher of Israel. How do you not know this? The problem is your how is all about this world. He goes, you're all caught up in the how. And he's like, I'm all caught up in the who. There's your big difference. If Christianity is all about a how, well, then you're missing the who. The who is everything. How? It's like, look, at, are you, is, it, is it about Christ or is it about Christianity? Is it about Jesus or is it about a church? Because the moment we move away from the who, we're going to be way caught up in the how. And so he's like, look at how. And Jesus is like, you should know this. He's like, look, we speak from what we know. We testify what we've seen. You're not even receiving what I have to say. You want to know how to be born again? That's what you're asking. You realize that's what he's asking, right? Well, you realize he, that's why we have to get through verse to verse 15. Like I've told you earthly things you don't believe. Well, how will you understand if I tell you heavenly things? This birth thing, you get that. Now I'm just trying to relate it to something that you can get. But notice he says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that's the son of man who's from heaven. Why would he tell us this now? Because your how is about ascending. My who is about God coming down. Do you see the difference? All the how is about what do I have to do to get to God? He goes, the who? The who? What do you mean the who? Jesus, that's how you get to heaven. There's only one way. He's the way. He's the truth. And he's the life. It's your only way. It's all you need. He goes, well, that's the difference. And I remind you, we are celebrating Passover where God saw our torment, heard our cries, felt and knew our pain, and came down to deliver us. We should understand that God has to come down. Not man has to rise up. Because either I must descend, or he has to descend, but both can't happen. And what we've discovered is, God does all the work. I love the fact that he does all the heavy lifting. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That he who believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And you know probably the next verse. And that's why I love to stop right before it. 
See, here's the point. What Nicodemus is saying is, I don't get it. Okay, I get the fact that you're telling me, and understand how stark this is, because what Jesus is saying is, you need to realize all of your how means nothing without the who. No matter how much you're doing, and no matter how often you're doing it, all your prayers and sacrifices and all of that, it doesn't matter whether you knew the Pope and you guys are on a first-name basis and he can wave his hand and he, that you've bathed in holy water since your first bath. It doesn't matter in the end of it all if the who's not there, the how is irrelevant. So, you stood at the altar. A guy stood there with a collar. He waved his hand. You said, I do. And you went and you bought rings and you put one on. And you went and bought a house and you got pictures taken. But in the end of it all, there's no wife or husband. You're really not married. You went through all of the motions. You did all of the practices. You did the rites and the rituals. You even practiced the politic of it. You call home. I'll be home soon, honey. But there's nobody there to answer. That actually is kind of weird, isn't it? Sooner or later, it's kind of smell weird when they're like, you know, you've been married for 10 years. How come I've never met your wife? Well, I don't have one. And you're like, um, that's, that's really weird. You're probably aware of the fact that marriage should involve two people. Although I will say that there was a person, and I believe it was here, that married themselves. Have you heard this? They legally married themselves. I don't know what that means, but let's just hope they never get divorced because that's got to be really messy. Anyways, you know, you keep the, I'm not, no, I want the CDs. Anyways, get this. So this guy, is, he's just not wrapping his head around it. And Jesus looks and he's like, Look, at the whole point is, is that I want you to be a whole new creation. This isn't about decorating you. This is about making you brand new. We're going to start completely over. Aren't you glad you can lay who you were down for good? He's like, well, how, how in the world do I do that? Interesting, by the way, because by the next chapter, he's going to have that same situation with a Samaritan woman when he's offering eternal life. And she's like, well, how do I get that? Because when we're caught in this world, it's all about the How? And Jesus is like, it's all about the who. He goes, let me tell you what it's like. And later on, by the, I believe it's in John 7, Jesus will say this again about as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up. And he says, as I am lifted up, I'll draw men to myself. And he says, he said this signifying what type of death he would die. And so the whole idea of the Moses situation in the book of Numbers was the same situation that's to his. So hear that. And then we get to that last verse and we're done. So hear me. Situation was the people were complaining. And complaining for good reason, and no, not actually, but they were genuinely, they were in a place where they were complaining against God. He had delivered them out of Egypt, but he was trying to take them into the promised land. But they, though he got them out of Egypt, they wouldn't let Egypt come out of them. Same thing happens to us. He may deliver you from the world. But in the end of it all, you have to deliver the world from you. So as they're complaining, God sends serpents fiery serpents, interestingly enough, that start to bite them and they die. What a rough way to die. It's good for Daniel to be here for that one. Imagine you're laying there in your bed and your sleeping bag and all of a sudden you realize your sleeping bag has several legs in there and only two of them are yours and they're moving a lot more than yours are and then you realize they're wrapping around your legs like a scapulous and then you realize that they're actually serpents biting everywhere they can find. You know, and then you realize that's not a shirt. Those are snakes. And you realize that's not my hair. Those are snakes. And in the end of it all, people start dying off. And as they start dying off, they cry out to Moses. And this tends to be the way it works. And as they cry out to Moses, Moses is like, all right, God, what do I do? And God says, well, here, I have actually a simple thing to do. It's a, they come from Mount Hur. They went by way of the Red Sea. They were in the land of Edom. And their souls were disparaged. This is, by the way, Numbers 21. And, and with that, he says, this is what he, tell, what he says. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. Now, I don't know how you make a fiery serpent out of brass. You know, like, you make it look like it's on fire. Do you, you know, anyways. It's, you know, it's, it's out in the sun, so it's probably going to look fire anyways. And it says, put it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone that is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So try, to make, try this on people. Now, bronze, by the way, brass is supposed to be the type of, if you will, it's, it's symbolic of, of judgment. 
So judgment's wrapped up in the symbol of their sin. They've been complaining, they're disparaged, they kind of run out at God, and they kind of crawl into his grill, and God's like, you have no right to do this. Who do you think you are? And they start to die. And as they start to die, this is what God says. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the symbol of their sin, and I want you to take that thing and put it on the pole. But this is what you have to tell people. And try to try to tell them this. I know you're bitten. Daniel, I know you're bitten by a whole bunch of snakes. And again, I'm just using you for the moment because you're usually with the kids, you know, and uh, not because you're a complainer. And, and, and with that, this is all I want you to do. I'm going to take a, I'm going to hold up a pole with a snake on it. You ready? This is how you're going to get well. Look at it. Now, which one of us wouldn't go, what? That's the goofiest thing I've ever heard. And here's the funny part. It doesn't have to make sense. You go, scientifically, how is a snake bite going to be cured by me looking at something? That makes no sense. How unscientific? How unmedical? This defies all common practices. Where'd you get that weirdness? So you could be like, well, laugh and mock all you want and die. Or look, it's up to you. You could say, I want another way. I want a way where I can rest in my bed and just get better. Or, you know, where I could, if I could just watch 15 episodes of something, then it would be better. It's like, but if you're dying sooner or later, it doesn't matter. In the end of it all, all you really want is a cure. You're like, well, I'll wait. And as you get sicker and sicker and sicker, let me remind you, all you have to do is look at the poll. Now think about it from my perspective. If I had to go to classes and someone told me, this is the way you convince a person that to look at the poll. And this is the way they have to look at the poll. And this is how you have to hold the poll. And this is the maximum way to hold the poll to get the most people to look. And this is the way you don't hold the poll because people certainly won't look if you hold it like this. I mean, imagine by the time I get done with that, Daniel's been dead three different times, you know, as well as everyone else that's been. And then in the end of it all, I'm so caught up in the practice of it. And by the way, might I say I'm so caught up in the how of it that in the end of it all, I don't even want to take the pole out at all because I'm afraid I'll fail. But imagine for Moses, it's like, just take the thing, put it on a pole and hold it up. I'll do the rest. All right. Okay. Everybody look. Hey, over here. Hey, look, and that's it. Look in faith and people are cured. This is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to be the symbol of our sin. And as he's the symbol of our sin, he's going to hang on a pole. The cross, where he's going to take all of your sin and my sin and he's going to hang there in his misery because God came down to do so. And he's asking you to look to him in faith. The how means nothing without the who. You can stare at any other stick all you want. You can look and go, that's a bigger stick. That's a nicer stick. Look, at that's a tree. That's a good one. But only the symbol of your sin hanging on that stick makes any sense at all. Well, it defies logic. But it is the right. So notice what he says. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him you won't, you won't perish. You'll have eternal life. If you're willing to do this, God will make you born again. You don't have to be confirmed per se. You don't have to go through a bunch of classes. It's simple. Look to the one who died for you. Look to the symbol of your sin on that stick who died and rose again. His death says the old you's dead. The new, the resurrection says there's a new life. You are born again. You just have to accept the gift. You want a miracle? Jesus said, I'll destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. Because it's the only miracle you need. He conquered your death and mine and rose again and he offers you that when you say yes. As we go to prayer, that's where we're at today. How do you be born again? Accept the gift of Jesus. If you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus, you're not born again. If you have, you are. And it's time to live like it. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. Lord, don't let us be like the people in the wilderness. Loathing the things you offer. Not finding the things that our minds crave. But our hearts could never be satisfied by 
And they recognized it wasn't enough to just make this symbol. It wasn't just enough to hang there. They had to look to him. And in John 12, I believe is actually where it is. You say, if you're lifted up from the earth, you'll draw all men to yourself. But you've said way before that, 700 plus years before that, in Isaiah 45, 22, look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. 300 years later, what Zechariah would say in 1210, you know, Lord, then they will look on me whom they've pierced. Soon after this, Jesus, the writer of Hebrews would say in 12.2, looking unto you, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I just pray today that we would recognize the offer that's before us and make our life more of the who than the how. You know what's in us. A heart that craves eternity and a mind that doesn't know how to meet it. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to us right now. Please, show us this need and show us your cure. If there be any here tonight who have not accepted the gift of Jesus, you're not born again, but you'd like to be. Pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I, you and I both know our sinners, that I'm a sinner. You're not, I am. And that sin makes me guilty before you, but you so loved me, you became the symbol of my sin, clothing yourself in flesh and taking my sin upon your shoulders and dying on that cross. And as you died on that cross, my guilt died there too. And just like Scripture promised, you were buried and on the third day you rose again. And in that, you offer me a brand new life and I say yes. Please have me. Make me yours. I give myself to you. I want to be born again. Please, I hand myself to you. Jesus, in your name. If you believe in that prayer, you agree. Be a confident amen. You hear, Lord, our voices in our hearts. Thank you for the privilege of being in your word now. Jesus, in your name.